0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit allbirds.com and use code super24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's allbirds.com, code super24.
2: No pecuniary consideration is more urgent than the regular redemption of the public debt. On none can delay be more injurious, an economy of time more valuable. Thus spoke George Washington on the U.S. debt. And, well, he should have, because the new nation had a lot of it. Yet, George Washington was merely urging the Congress to act to pay its debts in a speedy manner. There are some now in Congress who say that the need to avoid the injury described by Washington and others is so great that the president can act himself. The U.S. began in debt. 11 million was owed to other countries, including interest to France, Holland, Spain, others, but also to our own citizens, about 40 million there. And then, when you included state debts, as it was reported by the first Secretary of Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, the U.S. had about 77 million in total debt in the dollars of those days. $77 $77 million. So let's stop here for a second. How much is that really in today's dollars? That's so difficult to tell going back that far. The time value of money can lose all reality over time. If you look at CPI, it could be about a half a billion. CPI is not the best standard, the price of items alone. If you use a laborer's wage, it could be $8 billion. One of the real problems is there just simply wasn't a lot of entities that had 77 million at that point, so it makes it very dubious to come up with these calculations comparing to today. If you use the share of GDP standard, which accounts for that, you get about a half trillion dollars. A lot of borrowing, and perhaps not as much as we do today. Still, in those days, in those dollars, it was a lot of money. It was, for instance, more than the value of all land in Massachusetts, or all of the land in Virginia in the 1790s. That the men who created the Constitution would be aware of this pending debt is obvious because many of them were holders of it. Indeed, these convention members, Pierce Butler, Daniel Carroll, Rufus King, James Wilson, Robert Morris, Roger Sherman, and yes, George Washington himself, were holders of government securities assumed by the federal government. This particular fact, brought out by the economic historian Charles Beard during the progressive era and causing quite a ruckus, what an assault on our founders, has never shocked me much that the leaders of the nation and the great men of a continent would be invested in the country's future. Should be no more shocking. Also, given that it was a standard form of currency at the time, it should be no more shocking than president owning T-bills. Some of Washington's continental paper were given to him in exchange for expenses he had during the war. At one time, he complained to a friend that he was forced to sell at one-twentieth of the value. Holders of such public securities dominated constitutional conventions in each state and saw that document ratified. In New York, half of the yay votes were holders of securities. In Philadelphia, half of the yay votes from that city were also holders of public securities, public debt that would surely benefit from the Constitution's passage. These securities, once the new nation was formed, were assumed by a new Bank of the United States and were expanded, assumed to include state Revolutionary War debts. The Assumption Plan split the country, created a new party, and James Madison complained of Hamilton's actions to letters to Jefferson and the stock jobbing, he said, that he saw of these securities in the coffee house in New York City the capital of the nation at the time. The coffee house was kind of a mixture of a Starbucks and a stock exchange. In his letter to Jefferson, he wrote that he was upset by what he called the buzz of gambling going on in the capital city. The recipient of that letter, Thomas Jefferson as president, would reduce the nation's debt, but the War of 1812 would force James Madison himself as president, to double it. In the second term of his presidency, though, Andrew Jackson was happy to be able to announce that he had eliminated the public debt and returned 440000 to the people through the states. Must have been quite a moment. After him, war with Mexico saw debt increase to the 1812 levels. Yet it was the Civil War that saw large-scale borrowing, a national emergency, of course, evident in Lincoln's other actions, the suspension of habeas corpus and the calling up of 70,000 reserves without Congress. Eventually, that war would see the U.S. spend $5.2 billion, much of it borrowed through war bonds. Today, as the debt ceiling crisis continues in Washington, a few, particularly Democrats in Congress, want the second president from Illinois, to take a drastic action, cite the Public Debt Clause of the 14th Amendment, and Constitution as a tool, raise the debt limit himself, or just simply ignore the debt limit because it's unconstitutional. Ex-President Clinton suggested this option. Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina, Democrat, said that he should use it. And Congressman John Larson of Connecticut and many others, Tom Hawken, Steny Hoyer, said that there would be support for him if he did. Republicans aren't so keen on this, said presidential candidate and Congresswoman Michelle Bachman. If he does that, he would effectively be a dictator. Others hinted that impeachment hearings would immediately begin. But well, wait now, simmer down, easy with the I word. President Obama doesn't want it. His spokesperson, Jay Carney, said, it's an off-ramp to the budget discussions that need to happen and we aren't interested in esoteric constitutional options. President Obama says he's talked to his lawyers about it, and they say he can't do it. But oh, wait again. That's not a no. And in our nation's capital, a not no is, well, not a yes. It's somewhere between a no but and a maybe. At least, it's something to discuss. And so we shall. The Civil War saw three amendments, 13th, 14th, 15th. 13th ended slavery. The 14th sought to protect the newly enfranchised former slaves and control Southern Redeemer governments in several ways. The 15th gave everyone, well, actually every man, the right to vote regardless of race. The 13th and the 15th were quick ones. But the 14th had a lot of parts, and it's been debated a lot since then. Section 4 reads, the validity of the public debt of the United States, authorized by law, including debts paid for payments of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. Essentially, as redeemer governments would take over Southern states, many of them former Confederate leaders, started to take over South Carolina, Mississippi, Louisiana. Congress now feared that the Congressional delegations they would send would form a majority and Democrats would capture the Congress. These Democrats would be sympathetic to the South and they might cancel pension payments to Union soldiers. They might cancel war debt for fighting the Civil War or worse, make the federal government pay for Confederate war debts. So, it elevated the public debt to a constitutional level. By contrast, a debt ceiling is a statutory condition passed by Congress. But it's not as strong as a constitutional question. Why did they do it? They didn't want any kind of horse trading going on. And that, I believe, is the reason for Section 4. They didn't want a new Congress to come in and say, okay, you want your Union soldiers paid, we want our Confederate war debts paid. Even though it was a war against the Union, it's something that's being settled now In an act of kindness, you will pay our war debts, and then we will pay yours. They didn't want any kind of horse trading, so they raised it to the constitutional level. What that seems to make clear is that you can't repudiate the debt, not even if you were Congress. Debt is elevated to constitutional principle and must be observed unless you can get a constitutional amendment, a majority of Congress plus three-fourths of the state, very high standard. Since the president is given the executive power execute the laws, in this case through his Treasury Secretary, an office only a few months younger than the creation of the United States. That would be the instrument to make debt payments even where the Congress rejects the need to pay. If there's a dispute, then it goes to the Supreme Court. And of course, the Supreme Court has a volume, we can expect, of decisions on this subject. But not really. In this section, Section 4 is the least interesting part of the 14th Amendment. In fact, it hasn't been discussed publicly much since it was passed, a little bit in the 1930s, while the 14th Amendment is highly interesting and highly debated in many, many court cases. Only one case exists, from what I can see, a man who wanted gold from the United States government. When Mr. Perry bought a liberty bond in 1917, he was told that he could redeem it in gold. In 1935, When he sought to redeem a $10,000 bond, two things had happened. First, the government had banned citizens from owning gold, had to return gold in to the U.S. Treasury. Secondly, the amount of gold in any given dollar dropped. Perry thus wanted $16,000 in U.S. paper or the equivalent in gold. A divided court decided that the government was correct, though perhaps not acting justly in devaluing the amount of gold in a dollar. In that decision, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes made clear that the 14th Section 4 would be enforced by the court. The section about the validity of the debt shall not be questioned was included in his decision. He just didn't think the court should award damage or start a flow of redemptions to the United States.
0: Spring? Is that you? That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.
2: Conservative Justice McReynolds, in his dissent, lashed out. We cannot believe the far-seeing framers intended for the government to have the authority to annihilate its own obligations. Just men regard spoilation of citizens by their sovereign with abhorrence. Whew, tough stuff. Now... That means that both the moderate end of the court at this time in the 1930s, and this was the New Deal court that was arguing with Franklin Roosevelt all the time, both the moderate end and the conservative end of the court, the deciders and the dissenters, agreed on this. Fourteen Section 4 applies, and the debt must be paid back. This, many say, is the reason that the president could simply raise the debt, citing this case, Perry, and the tax to the amendment. Of course, President Obama says he doesn't plan to do it, but let's say he did. He might be sued. Who would have standing to sue? Who is the party that is wronged? Well, if the President does something that Congress hasn't authorized, it would be Congress. But the House and the Senate would have to agree in a joint resolution in order to bring a lawsuit. Now, a few Congressmen could sue and say, "Well, we can't get because of the politics the House, and the Senate to do this, but we've been wronged well. That's been tried before. In a recent case where President Clinton executed a line item veto, vetoed specific points of legislation, a few congressmen came to the Supreme Court to oppose and they were told that they had to get the entire body. Now, who did have standing to sue because his use of the line item veto was eventually ruled unconstitutional by the court? It was the recipients of the money that he had vetoed. So who would do it here? Bondholders? But they're being paid. It's unclear who would sue. So there are some legal scholars saying President Obama can do this with impunity because no one can bring a case to court. I do wonder about that, only because while it is true that a few congressmen or these isolated groups have not been granted standing in the past, the court has also demonstrated, let's say in Bush v. Gore, that they will act if there's any sense of a constitutional crisis. Anything that might make the court look bad if it simply refuses to act. So we'll see there. The president says he's not interested, though, in esoteric constitutional arguments. And that's probably for a very good reason. Citing one part of the Constitution, 14 Section 4, puts you up against others. Article 1, Section 9, no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. Article 1, Section 8. The Congress shall have the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. That's one that's going to be cited a lot if this is used. Article 1, Section 7, all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House. This is going to be the the counter-argument constitutionally. It's fairly clear what the men in Philadelphia were thinking. Just as the Speaker of the House has no business getting on a white horse and directing the Army, the President had no business filling bags of money at the Treasury the actions he'd take, would perhaps be justified by the 14th paying our debts, but would lead to other questions, of course. The fact that some of these monies are already appropriated by Congress would help. The fact that no one might have standing to sue might help, but it wouldn't entirely free him from question. The more solid ground is to simply not use the 14th. Use Article 1 and ignore the 14th, or just use it as a supplemental President Obama, or any occupant of the White House, has executive power. That's not immediately defined in the document. He also has, and this is defined, to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Is paying back a bondholder faithfully executing the law? Is paying soldiers faithfully executing the law? Is paying Social Security recipients and Medicare recipients faithfully executing laws already passed? without
3: changing them. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. It's an interesting question.
2: There's a little bit of law here. Mississippi versus Johnson decided during the Reconstruction, said that the president has certain, quote, ministerial tasks, which he can never be sued for. They're just part of the job. You can't question them. Then he has discretionary tasks. Sounds nice. But for an action to be considered a ministerial task, it has to be simple, definitive, and a duty arising under conditions imposed by law. Is raising the debt limit or simply ignoring it a ministerial task? It would seem to be discretionary, though the simple action of paying a treasury bond holder or a federal contractor what they're due might be seen as ministerial. Presidents have used the executive power broadly, of course, but they've also been restrained by courts. The courts have ordered Andrew Jackson to put Indians back on in their land, ordered Abraham Lincoln to free a prisoner, ordered Truman to return a steel mill to private control, and ordered Richard Nixon to surrender tapes. Nixon's attorney during the case, the United States versus Nixon, had argued that he had the power of a monarch only limited by impeachment. That argument was not upheld by the court. Short of impeachment, the court can still order a president to do something. So I think American history doesn't support Nixon's view of a monarch, but a very powerful, temporary emergency executive within a democracy. My sense is that President Obama can do a lot temporarily and very little long term. And that's the way it's going to be judged legally and to some degree politically. If he does take any action, it had better be extremely limited. There might be a time period. There might have to be continual. I mean, there would have to be continual calls for Congress to act, that he is the executive with his ministerial duty is only acting because Congress had not. He has to be very clear about what he's paying. It has to be appropriated monies. And he may even want to introduce some type of temporary austerity program because of the emergency situation. That's the constitutional argument there. two points though, political and financial. First the financial. The president does this. If we're assuming he does this because he wants to calm the markets and avoid disaster and interest rates and the like, that's going to rely to some degree on the market. If his action is constitutionally questionable and we're waiting for a Supreme Court case, particularly with a con- more conservative Supreme Court, though not entirely like, you know not entirely clear how they'd rule, But conservative court, what's that going to do to the value of T-bills? Secondly is the political. President Obama, from everything I can see, would rather see Congress settle this rather than take any action that might be seen as grabbing to avoid the image he's tried to have as a calm leader. Far rather see Congress work out a deal. He might even figure out a a way to get a few days beyond the deadline and say, okay, Congress, you have one more chance. And then if you don't do it, I did everything I can, and I'm acting as the executive. Then as an emergency action executive, he can take actions to at least cover the debt owed. It is possible then we will get an interesting weigh-in from the American people at that point, perhaps hearings in the House for impeachment, It's a very partisan house now, and we'll continue to watch. I want to thank you for listening to the websites My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. I want to urge you to check out the Facebook site. A lot of good discussions going on there. And if you do like this program, please tell somebody about it. Thanks for listening.
1: Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet.